0: The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master! Did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest the gathering of the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn." The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Good
1: morning. Good to see each and every one of you here this morning. Thank you for those who are joining us online as well. Will you please pray with me? Father, as we come to your word now, we do pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord. Father, take your word and by your Holy Spirit, bring it down into the very bottom, to the very roots of our heart, the very marrow of our bones, that we might be changed more into the image of your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So years ago, I sat in the conference room back there in the back of our church in the office area. Pretty much very soon after this church had been built and I was gathered there with a group of people in our church. We were all gathered because one member of that group, who was not there, uh, was blowing up his life, severing his relationships, ruining his marriage, but also slandering, manipulating everyone else in the group, guilt tripping them. And it seemed like, certainly to them, that he was getting away with all of it. We read our call to worship, Psalm 37, that we read this morning, and we prayed together and talked, but there was one pervading question that everyone was asking in that room, like a cloud just hanging over the room. Why was God allowing this to happen? And are you going to do something about it, God? And I know many of you in your life have had similar questions. And perhaps you've seen the sound of freedom this summer. This movie that came out this summer about child sex trafficking. You've seen the statistic. It's at the end of that movie. that There are 50 million people enslaved in human trafficking right now. And 2 million children in sex trafficking. The U.S. is the number one destination for trafficked children. Perhaps you saw that and know of that evil. And of other injustices piled up in your own life. Or in this country. Or the war in Ukraine. Or the opioid or fentanyl crisis school shootings, and you ask, when will you do justice, Lord? When will justice happen? And why are you so slow to act? You may have even said something like these people in Second Peter that Peter was writing to. They said, what about this promise about Jesus and his return where he's going to fix all things and put all things right? Well, where is this Jesus? When is he going to fulfill this promise? Isn't it just the same as it has always been? The powerful people doing whatever the powerful people want. And nothing ever really changing. Sort of nihilistic resignation. Well that's the question. Just a small question this morning. A simple one. That's the question I want to look at this morning. Out of our passages. Because that's what our passage in Matthew. Our parable addresses. Certainly what 2 Peter is talking about. But to answer that question and look at it. I want to do three things. Or look at three things. Perception. Patience. And a promise. Perception, patience, and a promise. Jesus makes it clear here in our parable about the wheat and the weeds what he's actually talking about. We didn't print it, but in verses 36 and 43 of Matthew 13, Jesus gives an explanation of this parable and he kind of ties all the imagery of the parable together and tells you what the disciples, rather, what all these things are pointing to. He explains that the good seed is the children of the kingdom of God. They were sown, and the sower, the master, is the son of man. That the field is God's world, that they are sown in weeds from the evil one, that is the enemy. And that the harvest is the judgment day for everyone and for the world. But the focus of the parable that we read is not on the explanation, but you notice that the focus of the parable is on the servant's desire for immediate action and judgment, to pull the weeds out. But the master's slowness is contrasted with the servant's he does something different when he finds out there's weeds in with the wheat. He's slow. Older translations of this passage, they don't use the word weed because the Greek word is actually darnell. And a darnell is what the older translations would translate as a tear. And a tear is a plant, a weed, that when it is first growing up, it looks exactly like a wheat. You can't tell them apart. You would have tares and wheat growing right next to each other, and they look exactly the same. You can't perceive at the beginning what one is actually going to become. And so in verse 29, what the master says here, his first answer to his slowness is, do not act yet, because in pulling out things that look like wheat, you may actually and wrongly pull up wheat instead of weeds. When I was on staff in Dallas at Park City's Presbyterian Church, I used to drive home from church and stop at Half Price Books and kind of looking for gems, anything I could find, particularly in the religious section, you know. One day I was in there and there was this tall older man who sort of had a deep, mopey Eeyore look about him. And he was standing in the corner by the religious books and he just kept mumbling and muttering to himself not loud enough so i could hear what he was saying but loud enough so i could know that he was mumbling you know and it was really very annoying and i was getting kind of disturbed a little bit and distracted and eventually i just asked him hey, is there something i can help you find he said i don't know i don't know about all this jesus stuff so we began talking we started telling me about his experiences in vietnam about his divorce about the death of one of his children Now, people kept pointing him to Jesus and that he really wanted to believe, but he had this question from the Bible that no Christian could answer for him. And I thought two things. One, well, I misjudged this guy. He's someone who actually wants Jesus. And I also thought, well, lucky for you, buddy, you came to the right guy (laughs) because I happen to be a pastor (laughs) and I could probably answer this question for you. So we got a Bible and we sat down and we read Matthew chapter five. And he said, he read, and if anyone would force you to go one mile, go with him too. give to the one who begs of you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Then he looked at me and said, you believe the Bible, right? Well, give me your computer bag and the keys to your car and I'll become a Christian. Or I bet you're like all the rest and you don't really care about me. And then he got nasty. And started manipulating me and guilting me again and again. And I realized, this guy doesn't really care about Jesus. He's a con man. He lured me in here with the hard luck story. He implied he wanted Jesus. He implied that I and only I could help him. And then he overloaded me with guilt when I balked at what he was asking me. And he was quite good at it. We talked in that store for a couple of hours. In the end, I think I said something like, if you really wanted to become a Christian you had you to deal with Jesus, who already gave everything, his very life for him. But when I left, well, the first thing I did, I was cried because I was so guilted by him. But then I got angry. I got angry that he had tried to do that to me. And then I got angry if he had tried to do that on some sweethearted, naive grandmother. I thought I had perceived someone who was about to receive the word of God with joy and it turns out the person I actually met was a weed. But here's the thing that this parable is also pointing to. My perception of that is even still flawed because I don't know where that man is now. And I don't know if God used our conversation in order to bring him to faith. I pray that is so. Perhaps it's not. But I and we cannot see what God might be doing or when he might be doing something in someone else's life. We often want God to act, to bring justice to judge someone, like this con man, because we are certain to ourselves of how good of how God should act. We know how he should act. Just listen to us, God, and do what we want you to do, but we don't see very well. It's like if we were standing in the middle of that field, that wheat field. And from where we're standing, a section over here looks like it's not producing any fruit. It's not growing at all. And this section over here looks like it's just the tiniest little bits of grain. Hardly any fruit at all. But what we can't tell is that actually that's just in a valley. And from our perspective, there's no wheat. But if you walked over there down in the valley, it's actually producing more fruit than we're producing. Or we look over here in this corner and it looks like, oh, there's no wheat being produced over there. But that corner gets almost no water. It's a miracle that there's any wheat growing there at all. Or then we might think, well, all the grain and wheat around me looks lovely and healthy and full. But at night, it might just be because when we look at that, it reminds me of me. And it makes me feel good about myself. You see, God sees the whole field at once throughout time. And only he can perceive what looks to us like tares that might actually become wheat. And God's apparent inactivity is actually his patience. That's what Peter says here in chapter 2, sorry, chapter 3 of 2 Peter. Peter who wrote our New Testament reading was one of the disciples who was present here in Matthew 13 when Jesus tells the parable and explains it. In 2 Peter you can almost hear Peter remembering that parable as he answers those who were doubting if Jesus was ever going to return and bring justice on the world and establish the new heavens and the new earth. Peter says here in verse 8 of chapter 3 that God operates on a different time scale than we do. He is eternal. He says that he sees both every day, as it were, a thousand years worth of moments in one day. And at the exact same time, he sees a thousand years as if it was just one full day in the span of an age. Because he is both in and outside of time. He's outside of time. He's eternal. He's eternal. And so in verse 8, what Peter says is what feels like slowness is not slowness to God. What feels like inaction from God is actually God acting in eternity. We tend to see God's apparent inaction or his indifference as lack of care. But Peter here, in 2 Peter, makes the exact opposite point. He says God's slowness in acting is for the exact reason that he cares. He will not pull up or uproot too early. He doesn't want any to perish. What feels like slowness is actually God's patience. But notice the pronoun here in verse 9. We tend to think that God is being slow in order to turn weeds into wheat. and That is true. But Peter here says that God's patience is towards you. You must remember that he is writing to a church. He's writing to you and to me as well. God's delay is not simply to produce new wheat, but to allow those who have been already made wheat by faith and by baptism to bear fruit, to bear the fruits of the good works of love that we were, as Ephesians says, prepared before the beginning of time by God in order to do. Matthew 13, when the master says he doesn't want to root up the wheat along with the weeds, it isn't just for mistaking wheat for weeds, but also because the roots of the weeds have become entangled with the wheat. One summer, my brother and I worked for my dad's company, actually, weeding out the rose garden in front of the business. It was a horrible job. I hated every moment of it. But there was a large rose garden, and it was a rockscape, and we were just pulling weeds in the heat of the summer all day. And I remember one time I grabbed a large weed that was right next to a rose bush, and I pulled it up. And as I pulled it up, the entire root system of the rose bush also came up because the roots were so entangled. And I grabbed the weed and ripped it out from the rosebush, and I shoved the rose bush back into the ground and I thought, it's going to be fine. When we came back the next week, the rose bush was dead and the rose bush no longer produced any fruit or any roses. It's easy for us to condemn others, especially for things that we do not do. And demand that God act. And root them up. But we don't always appreciate that God's judgment. Always. Goes to the root. And our roots are entangled. But let me say it this way. This might be clearer. Human sex trafficking. And pornography. And slavery. Is simply the fruit. Of lust and greed. That is rooted in the human heart. And war and physical abuse, and the desecration of the beautiful, those things exist because envy and anger is its root. And our roots are entangled with sin in the human heart. And God is patient because he's working all the way down to the root of your heart. He is slow because he has to disentangle the roots so as not to destroy the fruit that he intends and plans and wants to produce in your life and in the world. Okay. So God is slow so that all the true wheat might actually be perceived. And he is patient to get down to the very root of our problems. But one question that still leaves us with is does God's delay then though mean that justice doesn't matter as much to him as kindness and patience? That justice and judgment for evil is less important to him than kindness and love and patience. Is that what his inaction means or implies? Well, The truth is that God has already acted. The cross is the crux of God's divine justice and judgment. At the cross, God doesn't downplay or dismiss justice. Instead, he brings his judgment first, though, upon himself instead of you and me. In other words, to use the language from our parable from Matthew 13, Jesus decides to become wheat. Rather, he decides to become weed so that we might become wheat. See, the cross is actually the promise that God takes justice far more seriously than we do. The kindness and mercy that we read about in Isaiah 55 here. Everything that God says in Isaiah 55, that if you turn to me and seek me, That you will find me, I will have compassion on you, I will abundantly pardon you. All of those things, when God says in Isaiah 55, come to me without money, come and buy, and I will give you all the things that you need. All that, he says, is true, ultimately because God paid the full justice of your evil all the way down to the root in Jesus' death upon the cross. My ways, he says, are not your ways. It's not love over justice. It's not an easy wave of a hand. Well, forget about it. No, it's love and justice perfectly joined together. So for everyone, the only shelter from judgment is the shadow of the cross, where divine justice and divine love perfectly meet. The cross is a promise that God takes justice seriously. What Peter talks about here is the day of the Lord. Or, what Jesus refers to as the harvest in Matthew 13, the sort of final judgment, when Jesus Christ will judge all things, is really just the completion of the judgment that God began upon the cross. That's only his second act of divine justice. But because his first act upon the cross was his loving, self giving, we can trust that his second act of judgment will also be saturated with mercy and grace. That it won't be vindictive, punitive, or retributive. But that it will be true. That it will be just. That it will be right. As Peter says here in verse 10, it will be a shaking of the heavens. That is the very systems of the world. He's speaking literally, of course, but also figuratively, of course. And he says that everything on earth will be exposed in that moment and known. Another way to say that is, no one gets away with anything. No one. Were wrongs done to you and then hidden and lied about and covered up, God still sees them. Do evils and injustices escape the law? They might. But they do not escape the sight of God. And a day is coming, not when expected, because a thief comes when you don't expect him, right? But a day is coming when judgment will arrive. There's a scene in the movie Sound of Freedom. The movie is produced by the same people who put together, produced The Chosen, TV show that you might have seen. And it's based on the real-life actions of a DHS um, agent called Tim Ballard who fought sex trafficking in his career. In the movie, Ballard sets up a sting with a bunch of uh, sex traffickers on the island off the coast of Colombia. In the movie, these traffickers bring 50 children to be trafficked onto the island. And when they're there, right when they think they are safe and secure and they've gotten away with their crime, suddenly the sting is operating. The police come in and judgment suddenly arrives and evil is exposed. For evil like this, it needs to be said. And we need to know and remember that God's judgment will come. No one gets away with evil because God is far angrier at the desecration of his image bearers than you or I could ever be. Do not doubt that he will bring justice upon those things. But if that's true, then what do we do? If God is going to bring his justice, do we just sit back and say, wait, well, I'm just not going to do anything and wait for his judgment and justice to come? Well, Peter says here in verse 11, since this judgment is coming because it is coming, what sort of lives should you live? He says, lives of holiness and godliness. In other words, lives fit for the presence of God. That's what holiness means. And lives with the character of God. That's what godliness means. That is the fruit of your life that we talk about is the fruit of the spirit, love and joy, peace, patience, forgiveness, self-control, faithfulness. These are the things that Peter says in verse 12, hasten. The coming of the day of the Lord. Well, what does that mean? Does he mean that by the things that we can do, we can force Christ to return? I don't think Peter is talking here about a causal relationship, but rather like the idea of making the field ready for harvest. Do you know what I mean when I say that? Matthew 13, when we hear this passage and we hear the idea of the harvest, we tend to focus on the negative aspect of that, right? Well, that's a bad thing. The reaper's gonna come and reap and bring all the things in. Things are gonna get burned up and all this kind of stuff, but that is not how harvests normally work. Harvests are times of joy. The focus in the field at harvest time is not on the wheat. The focus on the harvest time, and when you know it's harvest time, is because the field is full of ripe, beautiful, and good fruit. So the farmer goes out because he delights to bring that fruit in in order to feast And celebrate, and that is the biblical picture at the end of time in Revelation. What Peter talks about is the new heavens and the new earth that is full of righteousness. It is God's people bringing the fruit of their lives into the presence of God that they might feast with Him forever. In the real story of Tim Ballard, when he goes out to save an enslaved girl, he has to make a decision because to go out and do that, he has to leave the DHS forget his pension, and go in without the protection of the U.S. government. And his vision of what might happen if he decides to not take all of those things and go try and save this girl, it says that he said that it was dark. It was all fuzzy and dark. He didn't know what the future was going to hold, whether it was going to be good or not. But in talking to his wife, his wife said to him, Tim, can you really stand at the end of time and say to God, well, I could have gone and saved this girl, but I decided not to. After hearing that, he said, suddenly the things reversed. Suddenly it became clear to him that this was the way forward. And suddenly if he didn't go, that became dark and murky because he realized this was the fruit that God had intended him to bear in his life. I don't know what that fruit is for you. Perhaps it's to get into the fight against human trafficking. Maybe it's just loving your neighbor this afternoon. Maybe it's giving sacrificially to advance God's kingdom instead of your own. That's just caring for an ailing spouse. I don't know what fruit is that God wants to produce in each of you, but God will and desires to produce it. And each and every week, when we come to this table, we bring the fruit of our lives in the past week to God, and we offer it to Christ as a true judge, that he might judge it, and then we feast with him at his table. And prepares us every week for the day of his coming. So that when he arrives, if you're united to Jesus by faith and through baptism, it will be a surprise when he comes, but it will only be a surprise of joy. Because now the real feast is about to become. It's about to begin. Nothing will be out of place. Where the roots are only good. Where all the evil weeds have been dealt with. So let us hasten the coming day of our Lord. By filling the field of his world with good fruit, with our fruits of love, joy, peace, and patience, faithfulness. May we do that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Father, we do ask that you would give us an insight into your deep love and mercy with us and the patience that you exhibit to us. May you work in the very roots of our life that we might bear good fruit for you and for your kingdom. Father, we ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.